we are in week number two of a seven-part series, just reminding you each week of this series, we're going to be meeting at 1030, and I see you all made it. We all remembered. I'm glad that you're here. Um, we talked last week about uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and this week, I don't have time to, to recap all of that information because it was, it was a whole Sunday full of information. And so I would just encourage you, if you didn't get to be here, please, please, please go back and listen on Facebook Live or you can uh, go to SoundCloud, our SoundCloud account, and please listen to week number one of this series because it is some very foundational things that are going to carry us through these seven weeks. So we have some problems, including me. We have some problems between the Bible and between science. Let's just be honest about it. There are problems between the two. Now, here's the truth, though. The problem, I believe, the real problem can be summed up with one word, and that is misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. Either we have misunderstood the biblical text, or we have misunderstood science. Either one will get us off mark. Either we've misunderstood the biblical text, or we've misunderstood science. But here's the reality, where both of those agree, where the understanding of the Bible agrees with our understanding of science, where both of those agree, then we are accurate in our understanding. But incomplete understanding of the Bible or incomplete understanding of science with maybe either poor, uh, poor biblical uh, exegesis, poor biblical understanding, or poor theories in science will always lead to confusion. Now, I found this interesting. Um, a synonym, let me, let me give you a quick language arts lesson here. A synonym, it means there are two words that basically mean the same thing or something that is similar. An example of a synonym would be like this word, fast. A synonym to fast would be quick because they mean similar things. Now there's another word that's kind of the opposite. So synonym means similar. Antonym means opposite. And the reason why I'm saying this, I find this so interesting. So opposite, an antonym, let me give you an example. There would be giant and an antonym for giant. Anybody have an idea? Throw one out. Small or tiny. It would be opposite. Okay, here's why I give you that little lesson. In the English language, interestingly enough to me at least, do you know what the antonym, which would be an opposite meaning word, an antonym for the word theory? Do you know what the antonym is? truth. I find that just a little bit humorous. That's the English language. That's not Harley. The antonym in a thesaurus, one of them, an antonym for the word theory 
the opposite of that would be truth. I just find it a bit humorous. Because we have all kinds of theories. We have theories about what the Bible means. We have theories about what God said or what God intended. We have theories about that. But we also have just as many theories about science. And I find it interesting that the opposite of theory, according to the English language, is truth. But where there is an accurate understanding of God's Word and an accurate understanding of science, where they both agree, we find truth. I think that's important for us to understand. Now in this series, I'm not proposing that God created the heavens and the earth, the universe, plants, and life. I'm proposing that God didn't stop there. Yes, He did create that, but He did not stop with just the universe and planets and and the earth and, and plants and life. Because God actually created science. The laws of science, He created them. Biology and physics and philosophy, all created by God. He created everything. And very importantly, God is not bound by anything He has created. God is not subject to what He has created. So last week we started with this verse, very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God. Now we said before that there was nothing. Nothing at all. There was no matter. There was no time. There was no energy. There was nothing but God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now I want to show you something about this verse that is very, to me, very, very interesting. I think you'll find it interesting too. It's something that is hidden inside this verse, inside this text. And you would have no idea about this unless you had some kind of inside track, an inside path to the Hebrew language. Information about the Hebrew language, which this was written in. Let me, let me help you understand what I'm talking about. Typical, uh, a typical Hebrew way of taking a word and making it a plural. Now, this is not all Hebrew words, just some words. But the typical way is to give that word an I-M ending. An example of that would be uh, if we use angels as an example. Now, let me just give you a, a little promo here. Angels will be the topic of our next series. It's going to all be on angels. I'm excited about that. The name of the series is called All the Life We Cannot See. I'm excited about that series. But let's go back to the singular and the plural. So uh, uh, talking about angels, a cherub would be one, singular. You add an I-M ending to that, you have cherubim, and that is a plural, which means more than one cherub, many cherubs, at least two, cherubim, plural. Uh, another example of that would be seraph. 
That would be one. Again, we're talking about angels here. You add an I-M ending to that, and you have seraphim. And that is more than one. That's the plural. So that's kind of how some words in the Hebrew language work with singular and plural. One versus more than one. Now here's where this gets very interesting. In the beginning, God. The Hebrew word there for God is Elohim. Elohim is the word. That is the plural. See that I am ending? Elohim is plural. It means more than one. But everywhere this word for God is used in the scripture, it's, it's grammatically incorrect because it is used as one, as singular. Do you find that as interesting as I do? Because in the very first verse of God's word that he provides to us, and the first time he is called by name, he reminds us that there's more to God than we can even understand. There is more of him. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, quite frankly, many of you, as you read that, you have no problem with that verse at all. No problem. And, and let me just say, if you don't have a problem with that verse, then you are not going to have a problem, really, with the rest of Scripture. There may be things you don't understand quite, but if you have that first verse nailed down in your heart, then there's really nothing else in Scripture that you would have a problem with. Now, on the other hand, if you do have a problem with that verse, you are in a very safe place, Stuttgart Harvest Church, a very safe place to investigate this claim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you have the ability in your life to hit pause on that verse. To hit pause on that verse. And here's why. You have the ability to hit pause so that you can come to grips, come to terms, to an understanding of that passage. Because really, until we have an understanding personally of this passage, the rest of the Bible will, will not really make sense. Because this is the foundation for everything else that is to come. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here's verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. I want to talk about this for a moment. The earth was formless and empty. I'm going to use my pointer here to point out a couple of things. This word right here, formless, and this word right here, empty. Now these happen to be adjectives which describe a noun. And the noun here in this verse would be earth. And then it's described as the earth is formless and empty. There's a problem with this. Most English translations of the Bible have taken two adjectives in this place right here to describe this noun. The problem is, in the Hebrew language, Moses used two nouns right here. He did not use two adjectives that describe a noun. 
So he had three nouns in this sentence. Now the earth, that's a noun, was, and he gave two more nouns. And so really a better two words than formless and empty would be if we used words like this. The earth was a desert, that's a noun. The earth was a wasteland, that's another noun. That would be better than these two adjectives, all right? Let me give you another little bit of information about the beginning of verse 2 here. This word, now. Uh, the very first translation of the Bible is called the Septuagint. They took the Hebrew Bible and translated it into Greek, and they did this hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So this is a very old, 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 the first, as we're aware of, translation of the Bible. They took 70 Greek scholars, that's why it's called the Septuagint, that's a fa fancy word for 70. They took 70 Greek scholars and they translated, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Because Greek was the, the language of the day. All If you were a Jew, you spoke Greek. You may not have even known Hebrew by this time in their lives. Uh, because it would be like today, the Catholic Church in Latin, you don't speak Latin, and the Catholic churches that use Latin, it, they're using an old, an old language, right? That's kind of how it was around this time when the Septuagint, they wanted the Bible in their language they were speaking that day. It was Greek, not Hebrew at the time. So these 70 Greek scholars, they translate this word right here. They don't translate it as now. They translate that word as but, B-U-T, but the earth was, okay, but. Now, I'll tell you why this is important in just a moment. There's one more word I want to talk about, this word right here, was. The, the Hebrew word for that word, it could be translated was, but it can also equally be translated as a different word, had become, had become. So all of that to tell you this, verse 2 could very possibly with no real arguments at all, verse 2 could equally read like this, but the earth had become a desert and a wasteland. Now let me tell you why this is important. But the earth had become a desert and a wasteland. And that's a very, that, that translation you can hold up really as equal to the other translation we just read. If this is the case, if this is the translation, then that means the earth was created, but the earth had become a desert and a wasteland. This verse, if this is the case, would hint at a possibility. At just perhaps that there was a gap of time between the creation of which is verse 1, 
and verse 2, it hints at just a possible gap of time, an unknown amount of time. Now, I am quick to say this. This is speculation. Just speculation. There's a few other verses in the Bible that you could add to this to create a pretty good argument that this is a possibility. But it's speculation that there is a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2. It's just speculation. But that speculation would answer a couple of questions. One of the questions that it would answer would be, or at least give us some hints toward, would be, when did Satan fall? When did Satan fall? Now, to get to that question, we have to ask the question of, well, when were the angels created? And we are told, God tells us in the book of Job, which, by the way, was the, uh, by date, was the very first book of the Bible written, very possibly. In the book of Job, God tells us that the angels were applauding God's work when he created the earth, created so that means that God had to create the angels at verse 1 when he created the heavens. God created the heavens. Then the angels were applauding as God created the earth. So if we know that God created the angels at verse 1, then it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then we know that by Genesis chapter 3, that's when the evil one, that's when Satan tempts Eve over the fruit of the tree. So we know he's already fallen by chapter 3. So the question would be, is it possible that the fall of Satan happened in that little gap of time, possibly between verse 1 and verse 2? We don't know. So that's why some believe that Genesis chapter 1-2 hints at a gap, after verse 1, a little gap of time, unknown amount, a length of time, and then there's verse 2. Let me say this, though. Even if that gap does exist, if it does, even if it does, it does not, please hear this, it does not help you answer any questions about dinosaurs. It doesn't answer any. The dinosaurs would not be there. The dinosaurs were in the time of Adam. How do we know this? Because they died. There was no death until after Adam sinned. No death, period, until after Adam sinned. So that does not answer any questions about dinosaurs, that gap of time that's unknown. It really doesn't even answer any uh, any. Uh, information about the age of the earth at all. That does not give you reason to believe that the earth is billions or millions of years old. That gap does nothing for that. It is purely a theology gap. It is not, uh, it is not an age of the earth or a dinosaur gap. So that's what we really don't know. We don't, it's, it's speculation. Let me tell you what we do know. We know for sure that the gap theory is speculation we know that it might just be an idea that is just hinted at we have no idea if it's real and and so that leads me to the second thing we know we know that that gap very likely very likely deserves 
no more focus than God has given it in Genesis chapter 1. Because if it were an important part of God's redemptive plan, I believe that he would never have left that to speculation. All right. I just thought it was interesting, and I wanted you to know about the gap theory. Back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now the darkness it talks about there, that darkness is not just the absence of light. It's not just the, the, the absence of any source of light. This darkness is, is uh, no ordinary darkness. It's a hint of some kind of unnatural darkness. That word depths, the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it translates that word depths as abuso, which is the same word that we get the abyss from in our English language. And the abyss in the Bible is that, that home place, that dwelling place of evil spirits and demons. So this is really, as this verse, this is kind of a creepy verse. It's an ominous part of creation. And then it says, the Spirit of God. Remember the word for God, Elohim. Elohim. Now let me tell you exactly why that is plural. Because God, Elohim, is plural. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what do we say about God, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit? They are three, plural, but they are what? One. They are one. I just find this so exciting. Here, the Holy Spirit is named. The Holy Spirit is given a name and first named you see, we have a tendency, though, as we think about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have a tendency to think of them in a hierarchy. Our tendency is to think of, well, we have God the Father here. And right under God the Father, not quite as important as God the Father, but right under the God the Father, really important, but not quite there, is God the Son. And then right under Him, we have God the Spirit. We think of them in a hierarchy, Father, Son, and Spirit. But that's not the case. The reality is Elohim. Three. God the Father is no more God than God the Spirit or God the Son. God the Son. Jesus is no less God than God the Father. They are three. All equal all part of, all forming Elohim, God, three in one. So who was creating? In the beginning, 
God, Elohim, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Elohim, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created. It took all of two verses for God to reveal to us the Holy Spirit. I find that rather fascinating. And His Spirit here in this verse, the Bible tells us, is hovering over this watery substance. Hovering over. And the image, the picture that God is giving us is of a mother hen hovering over, covering over her chicks. And now, we come to the very first recorded direct quote from God that we have recorded, and it's here in verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God creates light. Right here, God creates light with mere words. He created light. You know what the speed of light is? Light travels at 186,000 miles an hour. Nope. Seconds. 186,000 miles light travels in one second. And God created that with just simple words. You know how much we know in this life how much we know and what we know about is continually changing. It changes every day. How much we know and what we know about. Researchers are discovering that the speed of light is actually changing. It has been measured over 160 times using more than 16 different methods, they have measured the speed of light. And according to the results, the speed of light is measurably slowing down. Now this is amazing. Since the 1980s, scientists have been reluctant to admit what the measurements seem to be revealing. And they've been reluctant partially, partially because the speed of light is part of so many different calculations in physics. The speed of light is used in so many different calculations. And so they are dependent upon the speed of light being a constant, being the same. The same it is today, the same it has always been in all of time. And so you can understand why they would be reluctant to sign on to what the measurements seem to be telling us. But 
if that is true. There, uh, there's a mathematician uh, who, who he took the calculated speeds of the light as it has been changing, and he applied it to what is called a regression curve. And those speeds matched the regression curve to 99%. Really, it was like 99.9%. It matched a regression curve. And so the mathematician was able to take that and extrapolate that back to what that would mean. So it means if, if time, if not time, if the speed of light is slowing down, then that would mean years before it was moving faster. If it's slower today than it was, it was moving faster. And here's how he took that regression curve and applied it to the speed of light. Because it matched the curve to the 99th percentile. Here's what that means. If that is accurate, it means that light was 10 to 30% faster during the time of Christ when he was here. That the speed of light was between 10 and 30% faster than it is today during the time of Christ. It means that light traveled two times as fast during the reign of King Solomon. It means that light traveled four times as fast as it does today when Abraham was walking the earth. And get this. If the data is correct, then it means that 3000 B.C., which is not too terribly far from when God created the earth, at 3000 B.C., B.C., light would be moving 10 million times faster than it does today. That is huge. Let's look at verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness night. Evening passed and morning came making the first day. This was day number one. Day one of six days of creation. So I have to ask myself a question. I'm sure you've thought about this as well. Did God mean six literal days? I mean six literal 24-hour days. Is that what God was talking about? Or did he mean days in the form of ages and ages? You could call that like errors of time. Is that what he meant? Was it a literal 24-hour day? Or was it ages and ages, thousands, millions, billions of years for a day? Is that what he meant? How do we know what God meant? Well, there are several answers to that question. But we can skip most of those for now. Let's just go with the simple 
quick answer that is so accurate. God answers that question himself. He gives us the answer to exactly what he meant. And he gives us the answer in the book of Exodus. And he actually writes the answer down with his own finger. And he writes it in stone. He tells us in Exodus chapter 20, verse, starting with verse 8. God says, remember to observe the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. In verse 9 he says, you have... Six days each week for your ordinary work. Verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day, a day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners who are living among you. Verse 11, for in six Days, God says, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. God just said, you have literally six days, one week, just as God had, he said, just as I had Six days, one week to create. God very clearly says these are literal 24-hour days. As I was growing up, I was like, what does it matter? He created. What does it matter? Well, the reality is it does matter. Because if God did not create in a day this and in a day that, in six days, then God is misleading us, bordering on lying to us, and God does not, cannot lie. Let's go back to the light for a moment. Genesis 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Here's my question. Who said that? Who said, let there be light? And I believe that God answers that question for us in the book of John. John chapter 1. I believe he tells us it was Jesus who said, let there be light. Let's read that together. John chapter 1. I'll read it aloud. You just follow along with me. In the beginning, the Word already existed. Now that right there, the Word, that is simply, there we are right there. That, that is simply another name for Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already existed. Jesus already existed in the beginning. So when we say, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, Jesus. You could also say, in the beginning, the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God the Father. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus, already existed. 
The Word was with God. And that doesn't just mean that He was beside God or near God. It really means He was unified with God. He was in complete unity. Jesus, in the beginning, Jesus already existed. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus is God. Verse 2, he existed in the beginning with God. Verse 3, God created everything through him. Through who? Jesus. Jesus is at creation. Jesus did not just come along when he was born into this physical body. He was already there. And he was not just there, Jesus, Jesus was creating. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Who said then, let there be light? Jesus. Let's go on, verse 3. He created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. Verse 4, the word gave, that's Jesus. Jesus gave, the word gave life to everything that was created. So who created? Jesus. Who gave it all life? Jesus. Jesus is playing quite a significant role here at creation, is he not? The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life, that's the life of Jesus, brought what? Light. His life, the life of Jesus, brought light to everyone. And in verse 5, John says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So other translations say, the darkness can never understand it. We're ending here. But I want you to grasp the importance of what we just read This is so interesting, and I believe it is no accident, no accident, that in Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, God is creating Elohim, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, creating the first chapter of Genesis, the first chapter of John, God clarifies it and says, Jesus, with his voice in this verse, is creating. That Jesus the Creator is creating in Genesis chapter 1. And it is no accident, I find it so interesting, 
that both passages contain Jesus, and I find it Elohim and Jesus the Word. Both passages describe Jesus, and both passages are talking about the light. Is that not soul stirring? Jesus, the creator of the light, who is himself the light of the world. That's our Jesus. That stirs my soul. This week, my encouragement to you is this. Will you, several times this week, will you read the Gospel of John, chapters 1, 2, and 3? And just talk to God about what you read. John chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. You could do it all very quickly, but please, if you do it quickly, read it many times this week. John chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. We have an amazing, amazing God who is God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And this amazing God created light and Jesus is the light of the world and offers life to every single one of us. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, you are creator. And Jesus, you brought light to this world. And Jesus, as God, you chose to put on the limited flesh and the limited blood of your creation so that you could bring us life. Jesus, your word, your blood, it speaks a better word than any of the empty claims that we can hear anywhere on this earth. And Jesus, your blood speaks righteousness for me. And Jesus, it is you who stand in my defense when I submitted my life to you and you said innocent because of my blood. Jesus, it is all because of your blood. And it was your plan, God, before you even created the earth. Your redemptive plan was ready before you even said, let there be light. We pray, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.